Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am here with Jake Wood. OK Computer listeners may recall that he has been on the pod with us before back in November. Jake is the CEO and founder of Groundswell. That is a corporate philanthropy startup that launched last year. We're going to talk a bit about that. He's also co-founder and executive chairman of T-Rubicon, a nonprofit that Jake started in 2010 in the immediate aftermath of the devastating earthquake in Haiti. Welcome back to OK Computer. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. You and I have been talking offline just about the importance importance of the business community responding to disasters. And that's one of the reasons why you founded Team Rubicon back in 2010. We're going to hit all of that. But I also wanted to say one thing. It's just you and I, I was out in LA a couple weeks ago and we got to spend some time together. And I just need our listener to kind of take a look at Jake's background. I just kind of talked about these last two things that he did. But, you know, growing up as a kid, in the 70s and 80s. My dad, you know, like most people, is their kind of hero. I mean, he played lacrosse at Syracuse University in the early 60s. He was ROTC. He was active in the late 60s in the Army. He went on to build a great family of which I am part of, you know, great husband, great father. Um, and he was also had a successful career in business. And I look back on him. He's an 81-year-old man. He's about to turn that next week. And I'm like, you know what? He did pretty well here. And I look at you, Jake, and the more time I spend with you, and I think about all the things that you have been able to accomplish. I think you're in and around 40. And, you know, that my dad was my hero and he did all those things and you've done all those things. And I just think really the listener needs to know you played football at Wisconsin. You signed up for the Marines um, and you were a sniper in the Marines from 05 um, to 09, serving in two different war zones. You founded this amazing nonprofit, Team Rubicon, out of just sheer wool. And, and I, I know there's dozens, if not hundreds of people that helped you do that. And then now you just co-founded Groundswell, a company which some amazing backing, some some of the smartest VCs out there, and our good friend Joe Marchese also. So again, I take a look, and, and I, you know, reading your bio, Jake, you've also written two books here, man. I mean, like you got a lot going on. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a busy couple of decades, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> just lucky to be here. Most importantly, I'm a dad, so you forgot that part. And you have, have two beautiful young children, and I met your wife, and you guys are doing it out there. So you're uh, you're a bit of a man crush for me. How's that, buddy? Um, all right, let's get into this one topic that you and I have been kind of going back and forth with also with Joe. And I think this is really important, and I think it kind of crosses a little bit of a lot of that background, which is why I wanted to kind of set that up a little bit. But, you know, we've had this devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria where I think over 35,000 people 
people have been killed, and I'm sure hundreds of thousands have been displaced and are going to be living in really tough conditions here. Talk to me a little bit when you see something like this going on. Bring me back to those days where you had just come back from you know the Marines and you're, you're, you're thinking about what to do next. And I've heard you tell this story at the Team Rubicon galas and some of the other events here. But you know, it was that earthquake in Haiti where lots of people died, lots of people were displaced. And you're like, listen, I myself want to do something. And I know dozens, if not hundreds of other people who've been well-trained to deal with this sort of stuff. We can kind of figure out how to help. And that was kind of the origin story of Team Rubicon. And so talk to me a little bit about when you see something like this go on, you know, what sort of like, you know, juices start flowing in you? This earthquake that's struck uh, Turkey and Syria is is awful. And it, it brings back so many memories for me. As you mentioned, 13 years ago, I was sitting around uh, having got out of the Marine Corps about 60 days prior and watched the Haiti earthquake unfold in 2010. And I, I, I just remember watching the destruction, uh, you know, these the scenes of this destruction play around the clock on CNN and thinking to myself how, uh, how desperate the situation was. And, and, you know, having just returned home from Iraq and Afghanistan, I, I felt I don't know. I, I just felt like the scenes were so similar, like so much destruction, so much chaos, so much you know danger, right? And but also this opportunity to help. And so anytime I see uh, you know scenes like what's playing out on the ground, it, it does tug on my heartstrings because I listen. I've been there. I know how devastated these communities are. I know the struggle that they're going through. They're still clawing through rubble. They're still experiencing aftershocks. You know, more people just died in the last 48 hours with a significant aftershock of, I think, a 6.8 magnitude. And there's all this hopelessness and despair. But then amid all that hopelessness and despair, you see these unbelievable scenes, um, you know, where, you know, they might they might pull out a toddler who's been stuck under the rubble for seven days. You know, yesterday I watched them dig out a dog that's entire back half was buried under, under rock and gravel, been in there, you know, Lord knows how it survived. And you know, it's, it's those moments that, that kind of uplift people and those rescue workers and keep them going. So, you know, that prompted us to have conversations like you were saying about, you know, how can the global community and in particular, the corporate community rise up to ensure that organizations uh, have what they need on the ground. And I think that, you know, it's an important conversation for us to have. At your gala event, it was on the week of Veterans Day in New York City for Team Rubicon and the Goldman Sachs representatives there. I mean, Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO, sitting at your table and, and hearing all the stories of Goldman just getting behind Team Rubicon, just, you know, again, natural disaster after natural disaster, right, since you guys founded it. And, and talk to us a little bit about the importance of those sorts of corporations backing an organization like yours, because, you know, I get the sense it's just not going to be possible if it's just individuals. And listen, every dollar matters, right? Going to a nonprofit like that, but you really do need some corporate anchors. Just to provide some perspective. So we started Team Rubicon in 2010 after that earthquake. And just to remember, to maybe remind your audience and put things in perspective, we talk about 30, 35,000 people killed in Turkey. There were 150,000 people that died instantly in Haiti, you know, and another 100,000 people that died in the weeks after. So you're talking, you know, nearly seven or eight times the the level of destruction that we're seeing. And it doesn't make Turkey and Syria any less tragic, I just to, to provide that perspective. And since 2010, since that Haiti earthquake, Team Rubicon has scaled to about 150,000 volunteers, mostly military veterans, 
serving around the globe and, and inside American communities. When you think about what we do, we, we deploy these teams to communities in the, the hours and days after unforeseen events into some of the most complex scenarios imaginable, limited resources, limited information, tons of destruction, uh, logistics and supply chains disrupted, if not fully severed. And overcoming those environments is, is very resource intensive. Now, most people think, well, gee, that's what the US government's for. That's what USAID or uh, the UN, the WHO, the World Food Program, that's what they do. And they play a major role in that. But the non-governmental organizations like Team Rubicon that are responding, they don't just have a massive pile of cash sitting you know, that they can tap into. So it's very quickly uh, an exercise in projecting, one, the need. What's the level of devastation on the ground? What are the needs presented by that? And how can us as an organization uniquely fill those? Then what's that going to cost? And then unfortunately, you have to balance that question of what's that going to cost against kind of the, the colder question of how much can we raise to offset that? And so the faster that you can get signals from individuals, foundations, corporations as to what you can raise, the faster that you can make decisions early in that decision loop. You can get resources on the ground faster. You can get them there more aggressively. You can make mid to long-term plans, which of course impact your early operational planning. And so it's really critical to have not just wealthy individuals, not just normal individuals who are given $25 in that surgeon support. It's really important for a company like Goldman Sachs to pick up the phone and, and call me uh, as the former CEO of Team Rubicon and say, hey, we're going to pledge a half million dollars. That's, that's just a huge input into that calculation. And you know, sometimes it, it's hard for people to hear that and to hear that these NGOs have to evaluate their response scenarios in terms of dollars and cents, because you're talking about real lives on the line. But the reality is there's a dozen things more important to us than money, but they all cost money. Like our goodwill can't send a team to Turkey and Syria. You know, all of our well wishes doesn't fund the supplies that's necessary to treat people when we get there. It costs money. And so it's just critical for leaders to make early and bold decisions so that organizations like Team Rubicon can, can operate as effectively as possible. Have you guys seen, and, and again, this is not really about climate change in general, but it just seems like in the last 10 years or so, the, the rate of natural disasters um, in, in population centers keeps increasing. And, and I'm glad you put some context to that Haiti. I mean, Haiti is, you know, not far from the southern part of the United States, if you think about it, but it's not a country that most Americans think about a whole heck of a lot, right? And when you think about just the loss of life there, you know, not so far from our borders, it's kind of crazy. And sometimes, you know, like you use the term, like seeing it on CNN, I mean, sometimes it really does feel like it lives in your box um, a little bit in the TV box. The, talk to me a little bit about the frequency in which these are happening. And is it that more and more NGOs are going to be relied upon as, especially when we're just in some real weird geopolitical times. And I, I suspect groups like Team Rubicon can really kind of get in between the cracks here and there, where maybe some other organizations are not able to do so. One common marker for the frequency of disasters is the frequency of billion-dollar events. Uh, and billion-dollar events kind of defined as those events that cause north of a billion dollars in insurable losses. So the frequency of billion dollar events has shrunk dramatically. And I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but you know, earlier this year, uh, a report was released, you know, and, and I'll use kind of broad stroke numbers. I think it was probably previously in the United States, billion dollar events would happen every four to six months. Now they're happening every three to four weeks. 
And they're everything from floods and hurricanes to things like hailstorms. I mean, hailstorms cause more insurable damages than hurricanes in the average year. So the frequency of these events are increasing. Now, climate change is certainly part of this. There's also just the reality that we have an increasing global population. And the more people you have, the more stuff that gets insured and the more population that you have present to be impacted. And those populations are increasingly living near coastal locations where uh, things like open water, you know, the Gulf of Mexico dramatically exacerbate those weather events. So there's no doubt that this is increasing in frequency and in cost. So we have to think of new and novel ways to address them. And then, you know, coupled with the frequency of these disasters, I think that the, the geopolitical landscape is opening up seams in how both the government and organizations are responding to a variety of events. So I'll use a very politically charged example. Immigration reform and the southern border are uh, hyper-polarizing issues in the United States. And it doesn't seem like anybody can have a sensible dialogue about either. The reality is the you know, current policies of, of really the last four administrations have left nothing short of a humanitarian crisis on our southern border. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I have an answer for how to solve immigration or illegal immigration or any of those things. But I'm a humanitarian first and foremost, and I, I would find it hard pressed to find an individual who would advocate that we should allow young children, pregnant young mothers to sit there and die of communicable diseases or preventable causes like dehydration on our southern border. I think that that's, a, that's an inhumane approach. You know, organizations like Team Rubicon can and should step in in those moments. I mean, again, if we're a humanitarian organization, if we exist to alleviate human suffering, then we can't possibly look at a situation like the one that's unfolding on our southern border and say, yeah, well, you know, the government should figure this out. And even though they haven't in the last 20 years, we're going to trust that they're going to figure it out in the next 20 days. It's just not going to happen. We're in awe of what you built and how you just stay so connected with it. I know that as the executive chairman, you're no longer overseeing the day-to-day, -day, but you're really an important part of the capital, raising the awareness and, and making sure corporations and individuals are very aware of it. And, and again, you know, last year, you know, Guy and I and Risk Versal Media, we made a donation to Team Rubicon. We're going to match that again, $10,000 for this year, because what the work that you guys are doing is amazing. And we just really encourage our listeners of the pod to do that also. So go to teamrubicon.org and you'll find ways to participate and give. And I think that's a good segue to Groundswell. I know we talked about it a little bit with Joe Marchese from Cumin here, but let's kind of do a little follow-up here because, you know, you found it in 2021. It's a philanthropy as a service platform. You're largely dealing with large corporations, right, to institute your service across as a benefit um, per se. So talk to us a little bit about what the initial mission was, how it's changed, what you learned from some of these big corporations that you've been deploying. And just, you know, I've used Groundswell. I, it helps me organize a lot of my charitable giving. It's how last year I gave to Team Rubicon and will be doing it this year. And it helps kind of keep things really organized and kind of set goals and kind of see where you're giving that sort of thing. And I'm sure if this thing goes well, and I'm fairly certain if you're doing it, it will go well. This is just going to increase the level of giving by everyday people who are have access to this platform. Well, I, I appreciate that. Always good to, to connect with the user. You know, you mentioned it. We're a philanthropy as a service platform. What's that mean? We provide platforms to companies that allow them to roll out donor advised funds to each of their employees. I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with donor advised funds. They're tax advantaged charitable giving accounts kind of look and feel like a personal foundation. And so what companies are able to do, they roll these groundswell accounts out to their employees. 
it for the employee, it provides them with a financial vehicle that makes their personal giving more efficient and effective. But what it unlocks for companies is the ability to directly gift or match charitable funds to those employees. And kind of zooming out, you know, one of the things that I saw when I was running Team Rubicon was that companies give a lot of money away. And we raised a lot of money from companies when we were doing this. You know, over the last decade, we've raised close to $400 million in philanthropy. So I learned a thing or two about it. And one of the things I learned was that, you know, companies weren't very effective at giving away money and they really were failing to engage their employees in that. And I found that to be unfortunate because, you know, at the end of the day, no company wants to admit that they are hoping for something in exchange for their corporate philanthropy. They, they, they all kind of speak the platitudes of, oh, we're just doing this because it's the right thing. Well, yeah, but let's be honest. You're also hoping that you get some positive press from it. You're also hoping that it inspires your employees. And I just felt like they were leaving room on the table. What we aim to do with Groundswell is connect those employees directly with that philanthropy by decentralizing or democratizing that philanthropy. So instead of the CEO saying, hey, we're going to give a half million dollars and, and I, the CEO, get to choose what the issue is that we're going to support and what the organization is that it's going to go to, that CEO says, listen, we've got 500 employees. They all have a unique perspective on the world. So we're going to give every employee $1,000 to give away, and they're going to give it to whatever matters most to them. We saw that as really important. You know, the other thing that, you know, we didn't touch on this a, a whole lot, but, you know, when you're talking about moments like the Turkish earthquake, one of the tendencies for, for companies is to, to give stuff right? They say, oh, well, we make uh, chocolate bars. So naturally, we want to send chocolate bars to Haiti after the earthquake. Well, if, well I'm going to be really honest with you. That's a dumb idea, right? And there's, there are very few situations in which you should be donating stuff. In each one of those situations where it is the right thing, it better be really well, tightly coordinated with that nonprofit with a plan for how it integrates into what it is that they do. You know what's going to happen to chocolate bars that you send to Haiti? They're going to melt on the runway and they're going to be completely useless. You know what you need to give? Cash. Cash gives nonprofits the flexibility to make decisions in the best interest of their operational objectives. And so, you know, one of the things that Groundswell aimed to do was how do you give cash as effectively and efficiently as possible? Because that's really what, what organizations need in these consequential moments. You know, it seemed like a, a baton was passed from you as the CEO of Team Rubicon to the CEO founder of Groundswell. What, what's the experience been like? You just said you raised $400 million to date for Team Rubicon here. Now you started a company, you've raised a little money, you're backed by some monsters, some, some genius investors in Silicon Valley. What's it like? like to be a tech founder here? And are you seeing a lot of similarities between what you did with TR? Listen, it's a lot of fun. It's fun to be an entrepreneur again. You know, I've got a small team here, 30 employees. You know, we're hooking and jabbing every day as an early stage startup. You know, contrast that to my time at Team Rubicon. You know, by the time I left, we had, you know, 200 employees and I had an executive team that sometimes felt as large as my entire team now. You know, my roles were just different, but I will tell you it's very hard to be a nonprofit entrepreneur. It's just a, it's a harder case to make. Philanthropists are reticent to cut a $10,000 check to a, a nonprofit entrepreneur, but they'll cut a, a million dollar investment into a pre-product or profit company, you know, in the same breath. And I, I think that that was a challenge, but, you know, eventually we hit escape velocity and, you know, what I've learned now, 
trying to do it again, trying to build a successful enterprise again, is that you're know, running a nonprofit is kind of like training for a marathon with ankle weights on. You sit there and you're slow and sluggish. You take those ankle weights off and all of a sudden you're you know running six minute miles. No problem. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, as I said before, I'm a user of Groundswell. It's a great platform and um, I've gotten some feedback and I've heard from some of these large institutions that you've already partnered with that are using this service. And it seems like you guys are just getting started. So I'm rooting for you guys there. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Let's switch gears a little bit here. I'd love to kind of tap into your brain as a former Marine here. I mean, we are uh, on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I'm just curious, you know, um, you, you had a tweet out uh, earlier today, and, and I thought it was really kind of fascinating. And we know that Biden made that surprise trip to Kiev yesterday. And, you know, you said, uh, you, you quote tweeted a video of him walking with the Ukrainian President Zelensky to the podium. And as the, you know, kind of air raid sirens are going on. You know, that country is under siege. That city in particular is under siege. We know that on the one year anniversary, you know, that they want to pummel certain areas just for symbolism, that sort of thing. And you said, say what you want about POTUS Biden, but walking coolly through a city under siege with air raid sirens going off is pretty solid flex for an octogenarian. And again, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting, I, I can't spell octogenarian, but, you know, there's a lot of criticism about the fact that he might run again for president next year at his age. And I'm just curious, what does that mean to you? Because when you served, you know, whether you liked the president that was, you know, the commander in chief, you were in war zones, you had to have faith in the chain of command going all the way up to the White House here. What does it mean? Again, this is an interesting one, because we don't have boots on the ground in Ukraine, but we have a solid vested interest here. And what did it mean to see the president do that and show that point of solidarity with President Zelensky? Yeah, well, I mean, first, there's there's so many things I'd love to say about, about what's going on in Ukraine and the reactions of, of some in our countries and the support we're providing. But you know, specific to your question, I think leadership is about showing up. And you know, half of leadership is just being there and showing up. And, and, and in the Marine Corps, you're taught to lead at the, what we call the point of friction. Wherever that friction is on the battlefield, that's where a leader at any level needs to be. And I think, you know, to see a commander in chief go into a war zone, you know, and, and, you know, listen, people are saying they're up in arms are saying, well, it's not our war zone. Why, you know, why, why does it matter? Well, listen, this is, this is a war with immense consequences for the entire globe. I believe that I can't speak with any firsthand knowledge, of course, as to the deliberations that preceded this decision and this trip. But I don't think it takes much of a stretch of the imagination to believe that President Biden himself had to override the recommendations of all of the Secret Service, as well as the DOD. And, and pull rank and say, I understand you're telling me that this is a bad idea. I understand that your advice is that I not go. I'm going to go. 
to show the world that we stand behind Ukraine. I believe having been a, a Marine on the front lines and, you know, if maybe I have to establish my credibility for your audience. I don't know, but I, you know, I served in the Marine Corps infantry in the Anbar province in 2007 during the surge. I served in an area known as the Triangle of Death, led Marines in combat for seven months in that environment. I later served as a scout sniper during the bloodiest year of the war in Afghanistan. I know a thing or two about being on the front lines. For those Ukrainians that are in the trenches who are concerned that the ammunition that they're firing may dry up with a change in the political winds in the United States to see the president of the United States in Kyiv, you cannot underestimate the boost in morale that that will provide. And it's well known in the military that the moral is to the physical as three to one, to quote a very famous military philosopher. You know, that morale in the trenches, it sustains troops every bit as much as ammunition. I think Zelensky has been that source of inspiration for his troops. I mean, he has put on a masterclass in leadership. And I think that uh, you'd be hard pressed to argue that President Biden's trip did not have immense symbolic and real tactical importance for the people of Ukraine. Well, talk to me a little bit about that. And, and again, it just seems odd to me that it seemed to be starting in 16 or 17, the actual existence of NATO and our support for it became a political hot button issue. And I'm just curious to think, when you were serving in Iraq and when you were serving in Afghanistan, the idea that you have that that NATO exists, right? To me, is one of those things that I have to think is like to the sort of support you were just speaking of, the solidarity of in this war on terror. And again, NATO exists for a whole host of other reasons, but isn't it kind of important in weakening its resolve among our allies is just not a good thing. And so what you're talking about, what the Biden administration has done is, is basically saying we are recommitted to this because I'm looking at Twitter and like World War III is trending. You you want to have a, a scenario where we have a nuclear power. If Russia didn't have nukes, I mean, it would be all over this thing. You know what I mean? So I'm just curious from your standpoint, why is there any question about resolve for NATO and why is it not apparent why we should be supporting Ukraine? This aggression has been going on since 2013. First, I think that there can be some valid criticisms of NATO. I, I think that NATO took advantage of the United States as a warm, cuddly blanket, right? Like it was their, it was their comfort blanket for a long time. We spend more than all of NATO combined on our defense. And it's probably a multiple of the rest of NATO uh, that we spend on our defense. And I think people took advantage of that. Many, if not most of the NATO countries were not meeting their defense spending obligations. And I, I listen, I think it's perfectly valid to, to go back to the alliance and demand, you know, even before this invasion uh, of Ukraine and say like, hey, you have a responsibility here to do this. And our, our, the continuation of, of NATO is, is dependent on it. I think that's valid. But I think to criticize the the necessity of a NATO in today's world is is just a fool's errand. And I thought that before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and if you have any doubt that the strength of NATO is critical to our national and global security in the aftermath of Russia invading a democratic neighbor on European soil, I mean, you're just, you're living in an alternative reality. And I don't, I don't even know what to do to help you. I referred to that, that tweet about Biden in the war zone. It was kind of interesting in a way because I didn't see it. I haven't been looking at Twitter a whole heck of a lot of, of late here. And I saw that and, and I retweeted it because I really liked your message. I didn't think it was political. 
political. You know what I mean? But I, I saw that you had a response because you probably read people that were tweeting at you and there was like a lot of nasty stuff about it. And so, again, I thought it was kind of honoring our president doing something that, as you just described, showing a level of solidarity for something that kind of you believe in. What does it mean in this day and age? And, and also as you as a CEO of a company, do you feel different restraint now about voicing your opinions in such a public way because you realize in this country, it's like right down the middle. Some people are just going to attack you for it and other people are going to praise you for it. And there's really no benefit at the end of the day. If you think I, I throw a lot of firebombs around, you should see my deleted tweet list. But no, listen, I think I, I have an obligation to speak up on some issues. I'm, I'm not doing anything for the sake of follower count. As you did, I, I thought President Biden's presence in Ukraine was the right move. I thought it was the right move for all Americans and for all citizens of democracy. And I, I'm disappointed to see that people could possibly disagree with that. Well, listen, I appreciated seeing it from someone like you, especially given your background and the, the sort of cred that you have, not just in the military, but also what you've done since then. I think you're a very, very unique leader. I appreciate you coming on OK Computer. I hope you'll come back next time you're in New York. I'd love to do it in person with Guy and Danny. So thanks so much, Jake. Wood. Thanks for having me. I'll come on anytime. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.